This is the Yahoo Finance Sportsbook Podcast. Welcome back to Sportsbook. I'm Dan Roberts. And for devoted listeners of our relatively young podcast, just a few housekeeping notes today. Uh, This podcast up until now has been strictly laser focused on the business of football and the NFL. And as this topsy-turvy, wild, controversial NFL season continues, we will continue to discuss and monitor it, but we will also be broadening this out uh, to look at various week-to-week business-related interesting events in all the major sports. So stick with us every Thursday, but we will be looking at a number of different sports now, not just football. And in keeping with that, our guest this week was a very interesting author of a number of successful sports books, Rich Cohen. His new book out is Chicago Cubs Story of a Curse, about, obviously, the Cubs, the formerly hapless, luckless loser Cubs that finally won the World Series last season. We know that that was a 100-year drought. And we had in Rich to discuss the current MLB playoff picture. Uh, As we record this, the Cubs are still in, but hanging by a thread down three games to nothing in the NLCS against the Dodgers. And meanwhile, in the ALCS, much more exciting series, the Astros and Yankees tied up at two games apiece. So Rich was in here to talk about baseball and to talk about the Cubs and how the team turned it around. What a success story that was for baseball. But once we got him in the podcast room, uh, we saw some interesting ways in which the conversation turned to football. I think football is, the first time I think it, I think it's in trouble. Okay, because basically you watch a sport you play as a kid and all the stuff that's come out about head injuries to kids, kids aren't playing. And that group of kids is up for grabs. That was Rich Cohen, author of a new book on the Cubs. Uh, Rich has also written a book called Monsters on the 1985 Chicago Bears. Uh, I recommend that book. And as you'll see from this interview, you know, we start talking about this ongoing narrative in sports that the NFL and the NBA are just too popular, too fast-growing for baseball to be able to stick with them. Uh, There's this idea that baseball is losing fans, losing popularity, desperately needs to somehow turn things around and innovate or change. Uh, Relatively new commissioner Rob Manfred is trying to speed up the pace of play. Uh, They're implementing a pitching clock, a number of other little rules and nips and tucks to try to make these games move faster. But meanwhile, The current MLB playoffs are going well. I think it's been a really exciting postseason. The ratings have been terrific. Last year's World Series was the most watched World Series on TV in 12 years. I think there's been a lot of good news for the majors recently. Not as much good news right now for the NFL. The NFL has a lot of headwinds against it. Uh, The political controversy continues. Just today, as we record this, uh, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell held a press conference to address the player protests. And the results were mixed. Uh, It continues to be this scenario where people kind of twist what's happening in the NFL to suit whatever they already believe. So what Commissioner Goodell said was the NFL will not be changing its rule. It will not be forcing players to stand during the anthem. It would like them to. The uh, official wording of its existing policy is that NFL players should stand during the anthem. And people say, well, what's the difference there? A policy is something you have to follow. A policy is a rule. But the NFL sees a difference. The NFL believes policy and rule are different. So currently, it does not punish players if they kneel in protest during the anthem. 
So why do I bring this up? Well, the controversy and the political shadow over the NFL continues. And in addition, just this week, a new Gallup poll found that 57% of Americans identify as NFL fans. That's down from 67% five years ago when Gallup last asked. So that's a 10% drop in just five years. Uh, NBA is instead rising, NHL rising, pro soccer rising, and Major League Baseball took a tiny 2% dip in that five-year period. So I think there has been good news for baseball, there's been bad news for football, and Rich Cohen and I got into it. Okay, I'm joined by Rich Cohen, author of the new book, The Chicago Cubs, Story of a Curse. Thanks, Rich, for coming in. Great to be here. Uh, I am really enjoying the book, and that is as a Red Sox fan who has always respected the Cubs. You know, I got no respect for the Yankees, but I respect the Cubs as a team that obviously for many years, more years than the Red Sox, was the lovable, losing, can't-finish-the-job team. Right. Well, there were always the two curses. And fitting that they were both sort of solved by the same guy, Theo Epstein. But I always kind of laughed at the Red Sox curse because the Red Sox were often very good. They just would run into the Yankees, you know? Right. It was like the Blackhawks and the Montreal Canadiens when I was a kid. You'd run into the Yankees. So they were like the second best team in baseball. Um, The Cubs were terrible. (laughs) I mean, they had a stretch after World War II and before the mid-'80s where they would often finish in 10th place. That's not even possible anymore. I mean, the amount they lost and how far out of it was unbelievable. It was like the old joke, like it's, um, you know, opening day, and you know what that means. The Chicago Cubs have been mathematically eliminated from playoff competition. <laughs> and then when people would say, well, the Red Sox haven't won since 1918. They used to chant, 1918. Right, but you know I who they them. lost to and you know who they beat in 1918? The Cubs. Oh. <laughs> with Babe <laughs> Ruth pitching that. and wow. winning two games as a pitcher, you know. So... I always thought the, the the Red Sox curse was awful, but the Cubs curse was mystical and transcendent and otherworldly and weird and strange and right. different. Well, and in the book, there's so much I've learned, so many coincidences beyond just the ones that, you know, uh, whenever I read a, a sort of sports book, obviously the part when we get to the players that I know in my lifetime feels the most interesting because at least I see players I recognize. So I got to the Moise Salou. Right. I remember it well. You know, I'm 30 years old, but... Uh, from before that, so many different moments. The the Gatorade glove. Right. Well, that was my 16th when, when um, the Cubs were five outs away in 1984 from going to the World Series, where they would have played the Detroit Tigers, the team with Kirk Gibson, the team that is arguably one of the best teams in history, yeah. and would have been a great World Series. And uh, the ball goes through Leon Durham's legs, first baseman, an easy play that would have gotten him out of the inning. And he said it was because Ryan Sandberg had spilled Gatorade on his glove before the game. And it was like they start falling apart and blaming each other. And part of your whole fantasy is that they're a team and these guys love each other. You know what I mean? Right. And um, then a couple years later, our best player goes to Boston, Mm -hmm. where about to help break another curse, the ball goes through his legs, almost the identical play. That's Bill Buckner. And I don't know if you know this. You probably do. But... Under Bill Buckner's glove, he was wearing a batting glove, mm-hmm. and it was a Cubs batting glove. Big mistake. You know, so... Not only potentially the curse there or superstition, but also just the fit. You know, that's right. not something most of these guys do. Well, they used to have the thing, Mike Royko, the great columnist for the Sun-Times, had this thing where they called the Cubs formula, where if you were a gambler and you wanted to figure out a team that was going to lose on any particular day, figure out which team had the most ex-Cubs on it, and that team would lose. <laughs> but there was a serious point to it, which is there was this culture in the Cubs, which is expects defeat, embraces defeat, and even among the fans, 
have lost for so long you turn it into kind of a religion. And that becomes an attitude that infects the whole team. You're not the love of losers. Now you've won. I mean, has your identity as a Cubs fan been challenged? Yeah, well, after game six last in the World Series, I had this, like, epiphany, like, oh, my God, what now? You know, like, I know how to lose. I've been losing my whole life. I don't really know how to win. And so much of the identity of being a Cubs fan is losing. It's like we believe in the lost causes. We find something to enjoy on even a bad day. That's our identity. And what's going to happen, you know, to the Cubs fan now? So I do think that it changes, and it, you do feel a little bit lost and worry about becoming an ordinary team, but there, it, it had to happen. I mean, there was a point. I just wish I was 20 when it did because I'd have a more healthy attitude about everything. <laughs> but there was a point a couple years ago where I thought, God, every, there's not a single person alive on the planet Earth who was alive when the Cubs were champions. Yeah. There's an interesting part here where you talk about how the Cubs originally were the Chicago Whales. These are things I just didn't know. Uh, in what was called the Federal League in 1915. So Chicago Whales win that. Owner challenges the AL and NL teams, right? Right. And, and goes to the, the winners of those leagues and says, I challenge you. And in the end, the AL and the NL pool money and pay off the Federal League to disband. Right. Basically. Right. With a couple teams surviving and basically merging. So what's really interesting about all that is, you know, we're talking so much this season about the NFL and the political pall over the NFL because of player protests, President Trump angrily tweeting about the NFL. And so many in the media have dredged up this history from 1986 of President Trump buying a USFL team. Right. Called the Generals. That's right. The New Jersey Generals. Right. Right. And trying to basically force a merger with the USFL and NFL. I mean, have you, have you seen the parallels there? Yeah. Well... It's this, anytime you get the kind of upstart league, you know, and Trump, what he did with the USFL was interesting because the USFL had a good plan, which was we're going to play on the offseason. There's so much demand for football. People yep. watch football in the spring, and we can play in the stadiums that are empty. Makes sense. And Trump said, well, football, he bought into the team, and he really wrecked the league because he decided they would play in the fall, which left them nowhere to play and made him an enemy of the NFL, which they couldn't beat. And no TV deals. It all sort of, the lawsuit right. hinged on It was just stupid. Rights. It was like he hadn't thought to step three, which is kind of the way you feel like he does. Sometimes he says, well, this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, and that's real bad. You know, with the, with the, with the Cubs and the Federal League, I've always been fascinated by the Federal League. It was actually the Cubs were a merger of the original Cubs team and the Chicago Whales, which was, uh, you know, an upstart league because the play, it was like a player's league. Because the players were so underpaid mm-hmm. that a bunch of rich guys got together, started a league, and there was a price war, and the salaries went shooting up, and players made a lot of money. And the Chicago Whales had a bunch of guys who'd been on the Cubs who yeah. left for more money, including Three Finger Brown. And, um, and then the league collapsed, and the pay just plummeted. Mm. And the players were punished, and that's why when those guys fixed the 1919 World Series, by the way, because they weren't getting paid. Yeah. And it seemed deeply, deeply unfair. And baseball was huge, as big as it's ever been, and they were making no money. Um, So, you know, the parallel is to, I mean, it is interesting that football, the NFL has been a monopoly, really. Absolutely. Since the AFL. It's incredible they've been able to. And you know what George Hallis paid for the Bears, if you think about it? So the Bears are worth probably a billion dollars. Oh, sure. Okay. I'm just maybe more. So you know what he paid for him? No. So he started the NFL. It was the Decatur Staley's. 
the factory team of Staley Starch, okay, in Decatur, Illinois. And then he, he started, he made it a formal league. The only other team that's still a charter member is the Cardinals. Cardinals and the Bears are the only ones from the first season. And he paid, I think it was a $100 entrance fee, which he didn't actually pay. <laughs> he gave an IOU because he didn't have it. Pretty good deal. That's probably one of the greatest investments in of all time. Well, and of course, we're seeing actually that almost any team in the three major American pro leagues, MLB, NBA, NFL, seems to be a really good investment right now. I mean, right. even the Marlins, it's like people were so surprised by the sale price. But I was saying and writing that you shouldn't be because even if a team isn't good and doesn't win on the field, I mean, these new owners, which include Derek Jeter, could turn around and resell the Marlins in four years for more than they paid. Right. I believe that. Well, I mean, look at the Cubs. I don't remember what Ricketts play, paid, but it, everybody said they had overpaid. And I think mm, it's no triple. It's triple. Yep. And it's not even very long ago that he bought the team. Right. right. You know, but what's interesting is I believe, and I believe to be a good owner this is true, he really wasn't thinking about it as an investment. One thing he said to me that interested me was, I mean, he knew he wouldn't lose money because yeah. he's smart. But he said if they had won the World Series— Mm. He wouldn't have bought the team. Right. Because he liked he, that, well, and he wanted to be the hero. He wanted to be the guy that broke the curse. Yeah. Because he knows that all those guys will go directly to heaven without stopping in purgatory, you know? <laughs> and he had lived across the street from Wrigley Field when he was a student at the University of Chicago, summer of 84. He fell in love with them the same time a lot of us did with that great team. Yeah. And so those are the great owners. And it is like a bit interesting as a business because William Wrigley, who started the chewing gum company, loved baseball, and made the Cubs great and exciting and built stuff. And then he died, and his son took over, who didn't care, mm -hmm. and said he didn't care. And they asked him what his favorite sport was. He said his favorite sport, sport was craps. <laughs> and the Cubs, that's really why they, the A curse. classic sports team owner <laughs> right. response. And they like, just what's went, your hobby? Money. <laughs> yeah, but now people complain if you talk to people in Chicago because Ricketts has made a lot of changes to the area around Wrigley Field. He's mm -hmm. built this big plaza. He's, they, they changed the stadium. And my attitude is, like, that goes hand-in-hand -hand with the good team. Yep. It's all the same. It's an you active— You can't have one without the other. Right. They're connected. And me, personally, as a longtime Cubs fan who saw them, you know, really remember seeing them first in 76, 77, um, I kind of got tired of living in a museum. Mm. It was beautiful right. and sort of sad. Right. Uh, you mentioned the Wrigleys, and we're talking about the way that politics often infuses sports. We're talking about the NFL a little bit and what's going on with politics right now in America— and there's a, a very interesting part that you say P.K. Wrigley was one of the, I think it was 14 owners, to vote no on letting Jackie Robinson play, which, of course, time would later show was a horrible decision and, and ill-informed and uh, bigoted. So here's what you write, though. He wasn't a bad man, but a product of his time. It probably wasn't that he was a racist, but that he, that he believed his customers were. Yeah. So we've talked about this recently with uh, Yaki in Boston, uh, this, this rash of changing the names of historic sites or streets that are named for someone that we now believe was likely a racist. Uh, do you have a, a take on this or a stance on this? I mean, you know, for me, it's like I grew up going to Yaki Way and going and getting a hot dog on Yaki Way before going into Fenway for the game. So I totally understand the instinct to try to do away with the name. You know, we heard a lot of rumblings about this, but I also feel like Yaki Way is just a... a a term now that has nothing to do with who Yaki was. It's almost irrelevant. Well, the way I look at it is, I mean, of course, there's extreme cases. But basically, if you examine anybody that was born 
1880 and look at what they said and what they did, you'd consider it racist by our standards. Right. Okay, so you can't keep anything from the past. But the other thing about it that I always think of is this idea that we're going to change and clean history of these people that have believed, said these things or believe these things presumes that right now what we're saying and doing isn't going to be incredibly offensive to people 60 years from now, because it will be. We don't know it. And maybe how we treat animals. You know, we don't, the, 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 certainly what we're doing with the environment. Oh, yeah. I mean, so you're, you're going to, there's no way to, to sort of clean the past because we're making, we have plenty of our own sins right now that we are unaware of, yeah. is how I see it. And the, the, the truth about the Cubs is the, the, the thing, the reason why it is a good thing to look at is the racism of Wrigley, the son, not only was it morally wrong, it made the team bad. That's what's interesting about it. It's bad business. Yeah. Okay, because he w wouldn't sign a black player for a long time, and then he signed Ernie Banks, who's the not only Mr. The, Cub. the best Cub in history, both personality and ability. Okay? And the Brooklyn Dodgers, where my father grew up, had a completely different attitude. And after signing Jackie Robinson, Brand Tricky went and signed Al, uh, Roy Campanella and... Uh, Don Newcomb and the Cubs who had a, the Dodgers had a history of losing similar to the Cubs. They were the bums. Wait till next year. Suddenly became the power by by opening up that they really remain until this day. I mean, they've had ways, but they've always been good. Mm. And that really started with bringing in Jackie Robinson and the Cubs missed out on that. So the racism of the ownership of the Cubs, the big victim of it was the Cubs themselves. Last season in baseball and this season, uh, number of total homers spiked. And you started hearing the whispers that you hear every so often of juiced balls. Are they juicing the balls? And actually, this comes up in, in the book. You say, you know, during Babe Ruth's time, when he started jacking a lot of homers and, and sort of the, the tone of baseball changed, it went from the dead ball era to this different style of hitting. You say that some thought the balls were juiced, uh, meaning, you know, tied extra tight with the seams really low to make them pop. Right. Uh, you are obviously watching the current season. You know, you follow the Cubs every season. You got a, a stance on this? Do you think they're juicing the balls right now? I don't think they're juicing the balls. I mean, this happens. This, it's like pitching and hitting go back and forth. It's like an arms race. It's like offensive, defense, and football. Hitters have figured certain things out, which is the same thing Babe Ruth figured out, which is Babe Ruth was a pitcher, and he'd only hit once every four or five days. And he used to go into the batting cage and take this swing that was considered ridiculous and unorthodox, where he would start at his heels and end at the sky, and he'd hit these monstrous home runs in batting practice that people loved to see. And then the Yankees said, let's put the guy in the field every day and let him hit that way. And within a couple of years, he hit 54 home runs, and then he hit 60 home runs or whatever he hit. And whatever the number is that he hit. And he you know, had all these years... And then the example of his success was copied by other hitters who changed their hitting style to match his. They could physically do it. They hadn't done it because it was considered unsound baseball. Mm -hmm. Ty Cobb is all about, look at, go look at Ty Cobb's bat. His bat is, Slap. It's like a, but his bat itself is like a broomstick. It doesn't taper because huh. he had much better control. But it was very hard to, hit the, to drive the ball out. Babe Ruth used a new kind of bat that had a skinny handle and a fat barrel, the kind of bat they use now. 
So I think that home runs have become so valued in the last few years that a lot of hitters have copied the style, and they now all, you got like 100 Babe Ruths, where everybody has these swings and talks about launch angles, and then they measure stuff on TV they never measured before, like oh, yeah. launch velocity. Oh, StatCast can show right. you granular things you would never right. and, know. And players see that stuff. They yeah. watch ESPN, oh, yeah. and you play to the ruler, man. Like if you have a, a measurement, you play to the measurement. And you try to drive that number up. But then you get the, the reverse of it, which they've learned in other eras, which is what the Cubs face right now, which is the reverse is you got nobody that's a contact hitter that just puts the ball in play. You know, right. that has it's that all I, or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have weight. judges like that. More strikeouts. Right. Uh, than anyone. And judge is so popular that he becomes the example that's followed, which you're missing with the Cubs is Wade Boggs. Yeah. You know, and Wade sure. Boggs could hit home runs. Because one year he said, and Ty Cobb said the same thing, I can, but I'll just lose 60 points of batting average. And I'll, you'll know, strike out. And, and that's what you see it when the Cubs have a power outage because nobody has these long at-bats where they just, with the exception of Anthony Rizzo, I think, where they, where they can just always make contact until the pitcher gives in and throws them a pitch and they get a single and the thing right. starts going Worth again. Count. Yeah. Right, so I don't think it's at the ball's juiced. I just think that there's a fashion in baseball and with Babe Ruth the ball wasn't juiced either mm. I mean according to the guy who made the balls who had himself been a great player and a great cub Al Spaulding the ball hadn't cha- the ball had changed earlier they'd added a cork center to the ball mm. but that had been like 10 years earlier it didn't change anything I actually like and prefer when it's a defensive game and the focus is on a pitcher going hitless rather than slugfest you know I'm not a big like I think the problem is that home runs that brings the panache and pizzazz for kids and for young fans and that's an exciting thing and home run derby but I love when it's a pitching duel and and there have been no hits yeah and they always talk because you read about the Cubs the great teams were 1906 1907 1908 and that was called the dead ball era because they thought the ball was juiced but when you when you go back and read about those games they're more exciting than now because runs yeah. were so hard to come by that teams became incredibly creative at manufacturing runs, which makes every play exciting and you have to watch the whole time or you'll miss it. And you'd have things like, you know, the hidden ball trick yeah, or the double steal, you know, and, and all the kind of things. And Ty Cobb's 15 different kinds of bunts depending on the situation. Which is fun. Yeah, and too. taking guys out at second base and bowling over the catcher and, and, and all those, you know, and all the kind of crazy trick pitches and all the things that they did. And now you just want them to stay put on the base so somebody can come hit a home run. It's a much quicker way. Um, one thing that I thought was exciting often about the Cubs is because of Javier Baez is because I've seen Javier Baez steal home twice. Yeah. I'd never it? seen that before. Yeah. You know, and the so idea cool. that we can, we, can, we can figure out a way to score. So I agree with you. I think that the taught game where every play takes on the significance and then also – you know, baseball highlights usually aren't very exciting, so it's not great for ESPN. What makes it exciting is the waiting and the waiting and the tension and the almost, and then suddenly the release, you know? Yeah. And it's almost like a horror movie where there's all these false scares. You're like, ah, ha, ah, ah. And then finally at the end you get the big catharsis, and that's what a tight baseball game is like. Let's finish by zooming out and just looking at the sport broadly. And its future. Uh, in the last three or four years, it's become this popular hot take narrative in sports media that baseball is flailing in popularity. Uh, you know, NFL is just an unstoppable juggernaut. Of course, you know, on a on a separate but related note, 
boy, this season might change that. I mean, the NFL under a lot of scrutiny. But the NFL and NBA growing so quickly, uh, seemingly hard to stop. And then a lot of people complain that baseball, it's too slow, it takes too long. Uh, you know, it was ages ago that it was really the, the national pastime and the true pastime is football. And, and this idea that baseball somehow needs to change or to adapt to keep young fans excited. Do you track that, notice that, agree with that? Yeah, do you I mean, think the sport should do anything to, to evolve? I think they could speed up the game a little bit just in small ways, you know. I mean, one thing that seems, They're trying. Yeah. yeah. I maybe make a rule that once you get into the batter's box, you can't get out. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can get in, and that's it. You're in the batter's box. Maybe you get one time out in the course of an at-bat, and that's it. You can't step out of the batter's box. Because it seems like if you just... All the times guys step out, they do their batting gloves, oh, they yeah. do all the nervous ticks right. that they pick up in the course of a season. <laughs> they, they have to stand in the batter's box, like a Little League game. Yep. You know, I mean, if you were a parent of a Little League game and a kid kept getting out of the batter's box between every pitch, you'd go crazy. Oh, yeah. So I think that, that would be a very quick way. Also, you know, the, the, the way, especially in the playoffs, where they, every batter gets their own pitcher and then you have to wait for them to warm up and all that, the instant replay sometimes takes a long time. I think all that, you know, you read about a great Cubs pitcher, Grover Cleveland Alexander, who won. His games would last 90 minutes, you know? Love it. And that was the same game. He just got the ball through the ball, got the ball through the ball. I do think that football, and I'm a, I wrote a book about the 85 Bears, and I'm a big Bears fan. Monsters. Yeah. I think football is, the first time I think it, I think it's in trouble, okay? Because basically, you watch a sport you play as a kid, and all the stuff that's come out about head injuries to kids, yep. kids aren't playing. And that group of kids is up for grabs, okay? And somebody's just telling me that where, where he lives, all the kids are going to play in lacrosse. Yeah. Where I live, a lot of kids are starting to play hockey. I mean, I grew up playing hockey, and it was a smaller sport. But now my son plays hockey, and there's many more kids playing. So Not that hockey isn't without its you know, physical violence. but Yeah, yeah but it's not. See, football is violence. Right. That's the game. Yep. You can't get rid of it because then you, there's nothing left. It's like I once worked for Larry King. And one of, I was an intern, and one of his I, one of his jobs was getting his dinner before he went on the air. <laughs> and he used to order the chicken with cashews, hold the chicken, hold the cashews. You know what I mean? It's like almost <laughs> a zen cone. Like, what, what's left? Right. Just goop. You know, so <laughs> basically, if you take the violence out of football, you don't have really football. Hockey, however, you can play a, you can play a, a version of hockey that's more like basketball, where there's contact but it's not guys running at each other. It's incidental right. contact, and that's closer to what they have in the Olympics, and it's actually better hockey. Make the ice bigger. Make the game faster, you know. Um, but I think that those young players are up for grabs, and I think baseball should try to grab them. Absolutely. And if they grab them, if they can grab that generation that's leaving football and get them interested in baseball, then in 20 years the number of people at games will start to rise again. You know, and I think the number for football, the numbers have been down. And I really do think that that's part of it. It's that if you're a parent, you can't, it's very hard to let your kid go out and be involved in repetitive blows to the head when they're 8 or 10 right, years old. Right, where the goal is to hit the guy. And right, and the 85 Bears, I mean, I interviewed Doug Plank, who you should interview. I've never heard anybody talk about football like that. And he said, our game plan, we're, we're going to get to know, you know your second-string quarterback today. Your whole, we were talking about, Kyle, about Kaepernick, your whole plan is built around this quarterback. We take him Probably. out. Yeah. And he said, football is tackle chess. You can take all my pawns, but if I knock over your king, I win. Who's your king? Your king is your quarterback. I'm yeah. knocking him out. And if I hit him hard, now this is 85, hit him hard 10 times, he's leaving the game. You know? 
And that's how the 85 Bears became the great defense that they were. Monsters. Yeah, and he had a great line. He said, um, you know, why would they would say, oh, Doug Plank hit him late, he hit him high, he hit him, uh, and they would call a penalty. And you go, so what? You know, it's like they say in those movies, you, the jury can't unhear something. Yes. And the quarterback doesn't get unhit. Yes. Yeah. Wow, a lot to think about. Well, I love the book, and uh, listeners should check it out. Chicago Cubs, Story of a Curse. Thanks, Rich. Thanks. Thought that was a great chat. Uh, really enjoyed having Rich in, and I highly recommend the Cubs book. Uh, I thought that got especially interesting at the end when Rich was saying that he does believe that the NFL should be worried. He does believe that it is in danger, but not for the reasons you might think currently, not for various domestic violence scandals, not because Trump is angry and criticizing the league almost daily on Twitter, not because people are outraged about players protesting and supposedly disrespecting our flag, but because of head injuries, which certainly is the most pressing issue health-wise and safety-wise, and it's something that has been around a few years and is not going away. And I think Rich makes a really good point, even though you might say it's pessimistic and cynical, which is that football is violence. I mean, the idea of the sport is to hit guys as hard as you possibly can. Uh, as Rich mentioned, and I'll, I'll plug again for him, take a look back at his book on the 1985 Bears. I mean, they were called monsters because they hit so damn hard and were so dangerous to opposing quarterbacks. Just an interesting thought as we love here to debate and prognosticate and look into the future and try to wonder whether a time might come when the NFL is no longer that top dog in American sports. Maybe baseball makes a resurgence. Uh, of course, also always fun to think about the question, who is the face of baseball? Didn't get into it in the podcast, but we discussed on video with Rich. You can find that on Yahoo Finance. Uh, Rich believes it's Javi Baez, the Cubs player. A very controversial, maybe not controversial, but a, maybe a, to a lot of fans, a stretch. But unsurprising from a Cubs fan. Uh, I am not a Cubs fan. I'm a Red Sox fan. But you know what? I have made the argument that it's the Cubs as a team right now. That there is no one individual player who is the face of the sport. It's the Cubs as a unit because of that exciting, thrilling World Series win last season. But as we know right now, the popular choice, Aaron Judge of the Yankees. Especially as the Yankees continue soldiering on in the postseason and might make the World Series. Who do you think is the face of baseball? What do you think about the Cubs? What do you think the Cubs finally winning last season does to Chicago baseball fans? Does it change things? Are they no longer the lovable losers? Does it cause an identity crisis? And what do you think about Rich's prediction for the NFL that the head injuries are a major enough issue that it will stop young people from playing football and that that effect will really kick in a decade from now and that football could be in trouble? Let us know, comment, tweet at us at Yahoo Finance or me at Reed Dan Wright. And of course, continue to listen to our Sportsbook podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe. Find us on Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, Acast. We're on all the podcast things. All right, and I'll see you next Thursday. Thanks. Bye.